The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome, everyone, to Closing Bell. I'm Sarah Eisen. We actually begin today with a moment of silence here at the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ to honor the life and service of Queen Elizabeth II. Let's listen in. That was Lynn Martin, the head of the New York Stock Exchange. We're going to have much more coverage of the Queen's death later in the hour and throughout the hours here on CNBC. But first, let's show you where things stand in the market. Final hour of trading. We've been up and down today all over the map. Looks like we're holding the gains here with the Dow up about mm, 83 points, kind of in the middle of the range. We were as high as 200 points, as low as 259 points down. Nasdaq's lagging technology. It's still higher right now, but it is underperforming. We're seeing higher treasury yields again. That relationship sort of intact. The dollar's a bit weaker, and the S&P is up about a quarter of 1%. What's working? Financials, healthcare, materials, consumer discretionary, and energy. All those sectors are green right now. Communication services and staples are bringing up the rear. Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss the outlook for the market, the economy, and, of course, deal-making with Lazard CEO of Financial Advisory, Peter Orzag. And the CEO of Crocs will be here to weigh in on the state of the consumer, supply chain issues, and some concerns about growth in their largest market, North America. But first off, we're going to kick it off with the market dashboard, as we always do. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli. Mike, as, as we try to monitor whether it's safe to buy again. We saw a big rally, yeah. and we're actually higher now for the week, although it's tentative today. It is tentative. I would say it's a little bit erratic, indecisive. Now, we're holding yesterday's bounce, which is something, uh, about a 1% range in the S&P 500 during the day from the morning low uh, to the afternoon high. Uh, we are around this 4,000 mark, about 2% above this 3,900 area that everyone seemed to want to hold. The market's getting stress tested in the last couple of days by plenty of relatively hawkish Fed speak. It's really reiteration of the Fed stance. A lot of uh, market-based expectations going toward uh, three-quarter percent hike week after next. Uh, it seems like it's pricing the bond market. Stock market's trying to figure out if that's okay, if in fact that's the last big one. Now, sentiment has really taken a turn south. And I think this is a, a visible across the board. Take a look at the National Association of Act investment managers to weekly reading on this group's equity exposure. So it's self-reported, but it's real money uh, exposed in the market. These are tactical investment advisors. And you see we're barely above the June lows, mid-June lows in the S&P 500, 3,600 and change. Here we are at 4,000. And you still have this read of sentiment as well as some of the survey-based stuff showing people are very, very negative. There's a lot of hedging going on last week too, Sarah. So that sort of computes to me as there is still a wall of worry in this market. Market. It's a net positive. It's not the whole ball game because in bear markets, sentiment can stay pretty negative for a very long period of time. But I do think that it almost creates a psychological cushion 
four stocks, it takes a lot more incremental bad news to get them much lower. I know it's always jarring to hear Fed Chair Powell speak so hawkishly, so Volcker-esque. Yes. But he didn't say anything new today, did he? No. In fact, I think aggressively was attempting not to say too much that was new, really just kind of this is our stance. It's not going to change. We're not going to try to preview uh, any kind of a dovish turn or a pause in Fed tightening. But the market's looking beyond this and saying, you know, next week's inflation number could tell us a lot. Uh, we also did hear Charles Evans of the Chicago Fed say, once you get to 3.5% of the Fed funds rate, which is likely where we'll be by the end of this month, that's when you have to worry about over-tightening a little bit. So some of those very faint hints of perhaps a softening stance. Mike Santoli. Mike, we'll see you in just a bit. Thank you. For more on the markets and how to strategize, Peter Orzak joins us, financial advisory CEO at Lazard. Peter, always good to have you. I'll start right there on Powell and the Fed. Tighter talk, tougher talk on inflation, which is what what we've been hearing from Powell lately. What's your expectation about what happens next year on interest rates and inflation? Well, remember, the art of central banking is to make sure you talk tough and then adjust to the situation as it evolves. So I think that's exactly what uh, the Fed is doing. Bigger concern is the ECB. I think they uh, are, frankly, overreacting. The 75 basis point increase today was probably mm. too much. And Europe, I think, in the, in the face of a pretty severe energy and food crisis, has a lot of worry ahead of it. Um, and the ECB seems not to be taking that fully into account. But, oh, that's interesting. Don't they have to, though, do it to, to sort of match and keep up with what everybody else is doing with the euro already below 99 to the dollar? Yeah, but the, the, the size of the economic distress that Europe is likely to face um, as we go through the winter really suggests a little bit more caution. Most of the inflation problem in Europe involves food and energy. It's not, not things that are really susceptible to monetary policy. That is a somewhat different situation here in the United States. And so again, I think the ECB is sort of falling back into an old way of thinking uh, and not uh, recognizing that the inflation that they're facing is largely of a different nature than historical periods of high inflation in Europe before. I think Christine Lagarde wanted to believe that for a long time. And then they just kept seeing inflation rates skyrocket and everybody else doing 75 basis point Mike, so Peter, what does it mean ultimately for Europe? What's the prognosis there? And, and what are you guys doing at Lazard in terms of business there with, with all of these forces hitting at once? Well, the macro situation, again, I think particularly in Germany where uh, the, the hard stop on, on Russian natural gas is a significant shock. And then combined with the fact that you've got a climate-driven uh, crisis on water and very low levels uh, on the Rhine and other rivers means that it's very hard even to ship coal and and do the other things that you would do to help substitute away from uh, the Russian natural gas. So for now, uh, in terms of deal making, I think Europe, uh, the micro story is actually still quite active and and, and optimistic, but the macro story, I think, is pretty, pretty dire. And that that brings us back to both monetary and fiscal policy. Do you think that the U.S. is also facing recession? There is a path here. Look, the Fed, if, let's just be clear. If the Fed wants to or needs to create a recession in order to uh, disinflate uh, sufficiently, that's what will happen. It is within the Fed's power to throw the U.S. economy into recession. Whether that is necessary or not depends on 
the course of the next several inflation reads. And there are some very positive signs. So uh, in particular, the supply chain problems that caused not all, but at least a significant part of the inflation to date, those seem to be easing with freight rates coming down, availability mm -hmm. of semiconductor chips dramatically higher, uh, and, and gas prices also coming down, even though that's not a central focus of the Fed's attention. So there's at least a pathway here where uh, the U.S. can avoid recession while still accomplishing the reduction in inflation that the Fed wants to see. So what you, you alluded to deal making in Europe still happening at a micro level. What about in, in the U.S., Peter? What is the what is making it through right now? It doesn't feel like it's all dried up, but it certainly has slowed down a lot. Yeah, but you have to remember, there are some big underlying tectonic plates that are driving not only the global economy, but also the desire for transactions. That includes technology, it includes the energy transition, and it includes um, what I'd call peak China and the end of you know, Pax Americana. So we see uh, a significant amount of deal activity that is coming from those forces. A good example is something we advised on the Intel uh, Brookfield deal uh, that you know, is a new era of um, how chip foundries will be financed going forward um, as one of, you know, many types of transactions that are still going forward in this environment. What about private, private credit? I know you wanted to talk about that as it's a source of growth. You made a big yeah. hire very recently on this. What, what is with the explosion of private credit? Everybody's doing it. Even the big banks are getting in, involved in, in it. Is there enough demand? And what, what is that tell us about the environment right now? Well, there is a significant amount of demand. This has obviously grown uh, very rapidly. Even this morning, uh, Neuberger Berman announcing that its uh, private credit fund exceeded $8 billion, which is uh, you know, quite a significant amount. Um, this just, for many uh, strategics and many private equity-owned companies, offers an alternative to the traditional ways of uh, providing debt financing. So it's often faster to market. It's often kind of easier to arrange and has a variety of other benefits. And we're seeing a significant amount of demand for uh, the type of advice that Lazard provides in this space. We do have some um, existing bankers who do this sort of thing. But as you noted, we're very excited that Tim Donahue just joined uh, uh, this week and we'll be building out this practice further. Peter Orzag, thanks for joining us. On all things, Thanks macro for and Lazard. Always good to be Always with you. Always good to see you. Yeah, you too. Up next, the CEO of Becton Dickinson, which makes at-home COVID tests and many other medical innovations on his company's strategy in a post-pandemic world, as well as Amazon's ambitious healthcare initiatives. We've got the Dow still positive, losing a little bit of steam here. It's up 35 points as the NASDAQ 100 goes negative. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. 
Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. The FDA announcing steps this week to increase monkeypox testing capacity to address this ongoing outbreak. Meantime, Becton Dickinson and Surtest Biotech launching a monkeypox PCR test that will be commercially available outside the U.S. for research. Joining me here at Post 9 to talk about that and the whole strategy is Becton Dickinson CEO Tom Poland. Tom, it's great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. So we'll, we'll talk about a lot of your sort of indi- initiatives and your endeavors, but on monkeypox, where are we on testing availability and what are you seeing on cases? I think cases are, are still evolving. Um, the diagnostic industry is ramping up production of tests right now. We have announced a, an assay available currently in Europe that we're evaluating bringing to the U.S. How big of a portion of your business now is the COVID testing, which you also got involved in? Relatively small today. We're a $19 billion company, about $500 million in, in COVID testing today. We've been really focused on expanding beyond COVID, but to more syndromic testing, including testing for flu and COVID, trying to differentiate you know, respiratory disease. How have consumers changed post-COVID and their attitudes around testing? They really want more, test- less. <laughs> more testing at home. And so that's been a big focus of ours. We have a home COVID test. We actually have in clinical trials right now a flu COVID test to be able to test yourself for flu and COVID. And we see the future of more and more tests available at home. Things like strep throat, for example, is uh, being able to test yourself or your child for that at home is, is where you it's headed. You can do that without having the sticko all the way? But you still may have to do that. But uh, People can do that themselves? We think so, yes. Oh, I always found that difficult. Yeah. So what about hospitals? Are they back to pre-COVID levels of normalcy? In, certainly, I wouldn't say in normalcy, but uh, with, particularly with nursing shortages, et cetera, but procedure volume is up nearly to the extent that it was pre-COVID. Um, but hospitals are facing challenges with nursing shortages. Uh, many of the same labor challenges that many industries are facing are facing hospitals. And I think it's been a tremendous opportunity for medical technology companies like ourselves to apply new types of innovation in robotics, informatics, digital technologies to help address workflow issues, help drive efficiency, while improving outcomes at the same time. How acute is that that nursing and staffing shortage right now? It's highly, it's been really accelerated as a result of COVID and accelerated retirements. It's certainly something that's ongoing and needs technology and other solutions to help address. What about supply chain? Because you're, you're also a big manufacturer and have run into yeah. issues. Is that getting better? I'd say we see stability, certainly in supply chain. As you, you mentioned, we make more about 40 billion devices every year, ship them to more than 190 countries around the world. Um, the supply chain situation, we certainly see improvements. Shipping rates starting to come down, resin availability improving, chip availability improving in a number of pockets. Now, with that said, there's still, it's a very dynamic world. And so new issues can pop up here or there. But overall, I'd say we see improving stability and, and I'd I'm a bit more optimistic about where it's heading. What, what about pricing? What does that mean for pricing? I think certainly inflation. Inflation and supply chain challenges are something that no company is, is escaping. It's something that everyone has to navigate. Inflation still remains well over historical levels. Um, we seek to first offset inflation um, through negotiation with our suppliers, through being more efficient ourselves, and we do see pricing as a last resort that we pass that through. But we've been uh, this year, we'll have less than a 2% price increase on our products. Right? It's important to make sure that healthcare remains affordable. You also have to deal with the strong dollar, which sure. imag- I imagine has been pretty brutal. 
in a way, although it's something we've been navigating very well. As I said, we're a very global company. We also reinvest in many of the markets in which we participate. So many of our manufacturing locations are local in the geographies in which we, we sell. What about China? You've got a you've got a decent business there. How are you dealing with some of these COVID shutdowns? How's it impacted you? you know, our team in China have done a phenomenal job in helping us navigate. We still to expect to, to grow about 10% this year in China despite the shutdowns in Shanghai. And you know, it's important for us as a frontline provider to patients in China to make sure that our products continue to flow into those markets. We continue to do that even despite of shutdowns. One thing we wanted to ask you as well, Tom, is, is what you thought about Amazon's in initiatives in healthcare and what they're trying to do and how, you, how it might disrupt or not the space and, and the ecosystem. I think Amazon's been a partner of ours in the past as a distributor of some of our products. Um, certainly the innovation that they bring to the marketplace and a new way of thinking about healthcare innovation, particularly of bringing healthcare into the home, I think it's fantastic. It, it brings new ideas and, and challenges kind of the conventions of the industry. And so um, we'll look forward to seeing where, where they continue to, to go into healthcare. We talked to a number of analysts ahead of, ahead of this segment just yeah. to do our research. And, and they all said that you're a force for good and you've made some positive changes on the company, but you're only, what, two years Correct. into the tenure. So one question that kept coming up is where, what does Becton Dickinson look like in the next three to five years? Where do sure. you want to take this company so that it can continue its outperformance, which you have seen lately? Yes. As, as you know, we're a 125-year company. I'm the eighth CEO in, in our 125-year history. Um, where we see is we're focused very heavily on three transformational areas that are going to be revolutionizing healthcare over the next several years. And so where you see what you see BD doing is shifting our portfolio into three solution areas. The first is smart connected care. The second are new solutions that enable care to shift to new settings like into the home. And the third area of innovation that we're focused on is improving outcomes in chronic disease. And so you're going to see BD's portfolio. You're already seeing it today. It's a driver of our growth. Um, creating solutions for these irreversible trends that are currently reshaping the face of healthcare. Tom Pullen, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate Thanks. it. Give you a check on where we stand right now in the market. The Dow's up 100 points or so. You're continuing to see a divergence in terms of sectors in the S&P 500, which is positive. It's up a third of 1%. The leader today is the banks. Financial's up 1.5%. Loser is communication services, staples, utilities, and technology. Up next, the chief strategist of alternative asset manager Clock Tower Group on where he sees buying opportunities right now. Plus, Crocs. It was a huge pandemic winner, but the stock is down 40% this year. Coming up, you will hear from the footwear maker's CEO on whether he sees any signs of consumer slowing in terms of their spend. We'll be right back on Closing Bell. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. It has been a choppy session for stocks after Fed Chair Jay Powell this morning said he remains committed to maintaining the tightening cycle to tamp down inflation. And also some hawkish news from overseas. The European Central Bank lifted interest rates by 75 basis points, getting more aggressive than they had been, but largely as expected. Our next guest says, don't pay attention to what the Fed says, and there will be a pivot. 
when it is clear that inflation has peaked. Joining us now is Clock Tower Chief Investment Strategist Marco Popic. It's great to see you. So you have a few views that are a little contrarian, but on the Fed, for in, this was the whole thinking before Jackson Hole, is that buy stocks, inflation peaked, the Fed will pivot. Jay Powell totally shut that down, and he's done it now twice in the last few weeks. It doesn't seem like the market likes that. Well, I, I just don't believe him. You know, and I think uh, what's Why? important, well, I think what's more important for stocks is whether CPI has peaked or not. Uh, historically, if you look at all the other um, inflationary cycles, uh, when CPI peaks, equities usually rally. The only two times that it hasn't happened was 2008 and 1937, both very, very deep recessions. And so I just don't believe that the Fed wants to engineer one of those type of recessions. And so at some point next year, as CPI comes down, they'll be able to have the political capital to simply slow down the pace of hiking, which at 5%, 4% CPI is a form of a Fed put. I was just going to say, though, what if it slows down to 5%, 4% of PPI, which is still more than double what the Fed is targeting? They're still talking about a 2% inflation target. So that's the part that I just don't believe, that they want to get there in 12 months. If they do, if I'm wrong, then we're going to have a calamitous recession. And the, the truth is... So like, just have to keep tightening and tightening and tightening. That's right. And, and look, I mean, electoral cycles matter for the Fed. Uh, the Fed has rarely raised interest rates aggressively 18 months out to the general election. And so that's something that we need to start thinking as well as next year comes into the forefront. So are you bullish? Oh, uh, on equities, yes, provided that the view that CPI has peaked is correct. And so a lot of that will depend on oil price, which of course is a function of not just demand and supply, but also geopolitical risks, which have to dampen down over the next six months if you're going to have further decline in oil prices. And that's what's interesting about this cycle. Oil price stock correlation has completely pivoted. It used to be basically positively correlated. Now I think it's negative. And so oil prices have to continue to be either flat or have downside. Well, because now weaker oil prices are a function of the slowdown in China and Europe and potentially the U.S. as well. That's right. But also, when oil prices go down, they tell you something about the Fed reaction function, which they didn't in the last cycle. Last cycle, oil prices go up or down. You're not thinking about the Fed. But when Jay Powell said on June 15th, like, I'm looking at headline inflation, you know, that means that oil prices matter for the reaction function. And so yesterday was a good example. Oil prices collapsed like 6%. But what happened to the stocks? It was a good day for stock market. And you think that was why? I think that's going to be re increasingly why. I mean, it's one day data also, point. Also, bond yields came down. So exactly. Well, that's, that's all part, part of, of the it. same story, right? So, so you think the Fed's going to stop hiking and actual cutting next so, year? So that's a very important point. What does a Fed put look like in a world of 4% CPI? Because hiking or cutting is actually not relevant. What's actually relevant for us as investors is our real yields going up, down, or sideways. They've gone dramatically up. But in a world of 4 to 5% CPI, you don't actually have to cut to get the real yields to stop appreciating. You just have to hike less. And so to me, if they go from 75 to 25 basis points, they're still hawkish. They can still politically say, hey, we're dealing with inflation. But they're actually creating a Fed put. So we they also have QT going on. That's ramping up. That's trimming of the balance sheet. And a lot of people are worried about the impact that's going to have on markets. So ironically, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen to the stock market? Bond yields go up by a lot. What QT does, interestingly, is it actually reverses what QE did. And QE basically made you sell bonds, buy stocks. QT reverses that. 
And in, in a way, yes, that's a headwind to stocks, but actually keeps bond yields dampened, allowing the stock market to do okay over the next 12 months. I also want to get to Europe with you because you've got, I can't find anybody that wants to invest in Europe yes. right now. They have this ugly combination of very high inflation. Now they're going to have a rate shock on the precipice of recession if they're not already in one. And, and this looming energy emergency. Well, how, could, how, how is that attractive to you? So markets are forward-looking. And so what I would say is that the market has currently priced in a pretty dire scenario in Europe, which includes a recession, which includes an energy crisis. We know this. Look, the euro is at parity. Let me just remind something, the viewers. I mean, euro wasn't at parity during the euro area crisis when the very existence of the asset was in question. So that's like a lot of the bad news has but been priced the in. The central bank then was stepping all in and now they're taking it out. So the way I see this is the ECB policy is much less relevant than the price of natural gas. I mean, it's all one trade. It's energy prices and natural gas prices. In my view on that is that those prices are unsustainable because Europe has found alternatives to Russian gas. Furthermore, we need to be geopolitical analysts today and really focus on what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, the war is in a stalemate. If that continues, I think that Europe and Russia will have to find a solution uh, where they both kind of swerve from a game of chicken. And that's, that's a very difficult call. I know, it's a tough one. But for long-term investors, you look at some of the valuation in Europe, and they look attractive for long-term investors. It's a view we don't hear often. Marco, it's, it's great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Same. Thank Marco, you. Pop it. Let's get to Courtney Reagan now with the latest details on the death of Queen Elizabeth. Courtney. Hi, Sarah. Crowds have been building outside of Buckingham Palace as well. Wishers converged to honor Queen Elizabeth II. Notices have been placed announcing her death. British Prime Minister Liz Truss says the Queen was the rock on which modern Britain was built and that she prepared the country for a great future. With the passing of the second Elizabethan age, we usher in a new era in the magnificent history of our great country exactly as Her Majesty would have wished, by saying the words, God save the King. Condolences are streaming in from around the world. Washington is one of many capitals where flags have been lowered to half-mast. President Biden says Queen Elizabeth was more than a monarch. She was a steadying presence in a world of constant change. With Queen Elizabeth's death, Prince Charles is now king. Royal officials say he will keep his name and will now be known as King Charles III. He will be staying in Scotland at Balmoral Castle before returning to London. Sarah. Courtney Reagan. Courtney, thank you very much. Closing bell will be right back. With our kids back in the classroom, we are focusing on back-to-school stocks. Footwear maker Crocs saw a huge surge during the pandemic, but the stock's lighting since then as consumers face inflation at 40-year highs. Joining us now is Croc CEO Andrew Reese. It's good to have you back on, Andrew. Welcome. Thank you, Sarah. Great to be here. So, so tell us how back to school is going. I'm, I'm particularly interested because I know there's some concern in the market about slowing growth in North America. So what are you seeing? Yeah, frankly, we're very pleased with back to school. We can measure it in a couple of ways. We can measure it through our own DTC sales. So that's our own websites and our own stores where we saw uh, traffic increases and we saw nice gains in, in those environments. So we definitely saw a, a very strong business directly for back to school, particularly here in North America. Um, and then as we look at sellout in our wholesale environments, uh, 
we, we sold out uh, extremely well in our wholesale environment. So, and I think we've sold out more than we've sold in. So we also continue to to right size our, our inventories at wholesale. So we feel really good about uh, back to school. It's performed well for Crocs. I believe, you know, as I look at our performance and try and measure the underlying performance of the market, uh, I think we did a little bit better than the market. So I think we gained market share. It does feel increasingly like a kid's brand. I mean, I, I see, I have it on my, I use Crocs, my kids wear them, other kids wear them. The Lightning McQueen ones, I know you're re-releasing for adults. I think you should do so for toddlers. But how big of a portion of the business is that? And is it a growth yeah, part? Yeah, it, it's, it, it's a little less than 20%, right? So actually 80% of the business is, is men, men and women. Um, kids is about 20%. I would say that's relatively high for a for a multi-gender brand. I think one of the strengths of the Crocs brand is we sell to men, women, and kids. So we essentially reach the whole population, which gives you a larger addressable market. Um, so, and uh, I would say the kids business has been growing nicely. Um, it's really growing off the big kids, right? So the, um, the teenagers have been a very strong market for us over the last uh, three to four years, particularly girls and now increasingly boys. Um, and, and then the little kids want to be like their big brothers and big sisters. So we see that growing nicely as well. So um, yes, kids is important. You mentioned Lightning McQueen. Um, we re-released the, uh, the, the adult clog uh, today, in fact. And I think we had over 60,000 people signed up to get uh, pairs on our website. We sold uh, several thousand pairs in our stores today with, with great excitement. Uh, they are available in kids. They're always available in kids. Um, but the adult was a special request from one of our customers. We made it a few <laughs> years ago, and we keep making it and re-releasing it. It creates good, tremendous excitement. I think the lingering concern, I mentioned the stock price, Andrew. You know, you had this huge run in COVID, out of COVID, and then it's really turned around hard. And there's this lingering concern that, you know, fashion trends and people are fickle and it, it'll, they'll go out of style like they have before. How do you yeah. make sure that doesn't happen? Yeah, no, look, I think, we, you know, we've definitely been labeled with that pandemic play uh, label that I, I know a couple of other companies kind of are, are laboring under. Frankly, it's been true for others as well, right? I mean, we've seen uh, We've seen a, a, a rapid reversal in a, you know, a Peloton or a Netflix, right? Um, I think it's not true for Crocs for a couple of reasons. One is we, we were growing strongly as we went into the pandemic. The pandemic was good for us and we were able to do some exceptional marketing and appeal to that sort of comfort at home uh, mentality. Um, but as I look forward and I think about kind of what the global mega trends are that consumers align to, I think they're looking for comfort. I think in a constrained consumer environment, potentially a recession, they're looking for value. Um, they're looking for a little bit of inspiration. Uh, and if you think about Crocs, what we're doing is we're selling a comfortable, durable, incredible shoe uh, at $50, not $150, at $50, we give the consumer incredible value. And then the other thing I think the market's reacting to is we made an acquisition late last year. We bought uh, Hey Dude. It was a significant acquisition. We haven't done one before. Uh, I would have to say it's going really, really well. We're integrating them into our company and they're performing extremely well. But, but I think that creates a lot of uh, concern and risk for investors. But also the the long term, the long term expectations have come down, haven't they? No, our long term expectations remain what they were. So pre the Hey Dude acquisition, uh, we indicated to to our investment community that the Crocs brand could be five billion dollars, right? So and uh, that was by 2026. So we're still committed to that. We think that's in, that's uh, very achievable. We did bring down our guidance for the full year of this year as we saw a, cons a constraining consumer environment. Um, but I would yes. add that still 15 to 18% growth. 
um, on, in, on a constant currency basis. That's our current four-year growth guidance. Um, in, in an environment where the market is flat to down, right? So we're gaining share, we're gaining shelf space. And, uh, and I think, it, you know, even given that slightly reduced guidance for this year, we're still very confident in that $5 billion target for the Crocs brand by 2026. Yeah. And then, in fact, we layer the Hey Dude opportunity mm-hmm. on top of that. Got it. So it's the, it's the full year guidance that came down, long-term targets intact. Andrew, thank you very much for taking the time. Andrew Rees. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take a look at where we stand right now in the markets, up about 100 points still on the Dow. NASDAQ comp does remain positive. It's lagging. It's up two-tenths of 1%. Higher Treasury yields, but 10 years still below that 3.3 level. Bitcoin is higher today, but still below its key 20,000 support level. Coming up, why the surging dollar is a big reason for the trouble in crypto. And tonight, please tune in. I'm hosting the CNBC special Blue Chip Playbook. Top Wall Street pros giving us their best investment ideas from each sector. Blue chip stocks tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern. We'll be right back on Closing Bell. Check out today's stealth mover. It's a spicy one. McCormick down almost 7%. The spice maker, worst performer in the S&P 500 today. Investors are salty about the company releasing preliminary third quarter earnings, which were weaker than expected. McCormick also slashing its full year outlook. Warning, it is being peppered by supply chain issues and higher costs, which are weighing on margin, taking down a number of food stocks today. You've got Campbell's Soup, Kraft Heinz, Kellogg, all at the bottom of the staples list, which is an underperforming sector right now. Dining reservations, though, are exceeding pre-pandemic levels, according to new data. One Wall Street firm is naming top picks that will benefit from this restaurant renaissance. That's ahead. That story plus crude's comeback and the dollar's impact on crypto when we take you inside the market zone next. Hanging on to gains, Dow's up 41 points. We'll be right back. We are now in the closing bell market zone. CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli here, as always, to break down the crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, we've got Pippa Stevens on oil, Kate Rooney as well on cryptocurrencies. We'll kick it off at the broad markets. We are holding on to gains. The S&P 500 is up a quarter of 1%. We are now positive for the week. And Mike, I, I don't know what to think. Peter Orzag with us earlier in the hour saying that the ECB is making a mistake going so big with its rate hikes into, into this energy crisis. And then we had Marco Popic, who's a, who's a strategy at, uh, strategist at Clock Tower, saying he, he's actually bullish because he thinks Powell's going to pivot when it becomes clear CPI is peak next year. Yeah. And even bullish on Europe because he said that the bad news is just a lot of it is in already. Right, because, I mean, valuations are are really on the mat in Europe, I guess, if you think that there's anything but a really nasty recession coming. Interesting today, when the ECB raised rates, um, it did, you know, it it sort of helped perhaps soften up the the dollar a little bit, Uh, even though Lagarde was talking slightly dovishly after the the move was made in the press conference. So that seemed to allow the stock market to kind of get its footing. Uh, the, The rising dollar has been one of those things that's been a bit of a headwind. So I wouldn't draw too many conclusions about today's market action, except to say people had been leaning pretty negative. We got this good bounce off of support. The economic numbers have been okay enough, and that's why the stakes are so high for the CPI number next week and the subsequent inflation numbers, because that's going to tell you whether Marco's correct, that whether the Fed says it or not, inflation's going to become friendly and they're going to be able to take a pause. Let's hit energy because the sector's in the green today thanks to a rebound in oil prices, although crude is off the highs of the day. And it has been a rough ride lately for WTI. Look at the chart. It's still down more than 3% this week. 
Pippa Stevens joins us well off the highs. Pippa, specific catalyst here for today's gain or, or any move in either direction after we've seen such a big drop? Yeah, Sarah. Well, it seems that oil might have just become oversold after those recent declines that you were noting. And today's bounce came despite a weak inventory report from the EIA. And so that also indicates that maybe traders think the bad news is priced in for the moment. There have been so many headwinds hitting oil, including demand slowdown fears out of China amid the country's COVID lockdowns. There's also growing concerns over a recession in Europe. Oil also fell below key technical levels, which led to selling. And then just all this volatility and uncertainty has really led to low conviction trading. And of course, there are still so many factors to watch going forward. The Nord Stream 1 is offline. President Putin has said that he will retaliate against any nations that implement price caps. And so there's still a lot of unknown here in this market. Secretary Granholm said today that the Biden administration is considering extending the SPR release beyond that October date. So some relief today, Sarah, about whether or not this will hold really remains to be seen. Pippa Stevens. Pippa, thank you. And the relationship, Mike, we were speaking earlier about between oil prices and the stock market. So the the, the stock market wants to see lower oil prices, right? Because it means lower inflation. Yes, uh, absolutely likes to see it. I think it's been one of the reasons the market's been able to come off the lows the way it has. What's interesting is, you know, Treasury yields had been tracking with oil prices, generally speaking, for most of this year. The last couple of months, they've diverged. So clearly yields are are moving a little more on what the Fed's now turning to, which is non-energy-based inflation. But also uh, energy stocks have outperformed the commodity, too, at least oil. Uh, They've held up better. It seems like a comfortable level for prices, even if they're down a lot, uh, for the companies to do okay. The restaurant renaissance is here. Open table data showing dining reservations did exceed pre-pandemic levels on average for the first time in August and September so far. 44% of surveyed users dining out at least once a week. And it's not just restaurants enjoying a dinner rush. Bernstein seeing consumer strength and fast food as well, initiating Chipotle, Wendy's, and Yum! Brands with an outperform rating. Analysts there calling this post-pandemic era post-pandemic era, an opportunity to build scale and pivot to digital and highlighting those names as disruptors in the space, Mike, which I don't know, the, the, the market mood sort of shifts on this because restaurants are also considered very discretionary and yes. you give that up when you're in a time of hardship in the economy. And we're certainly feeling that on the inflation front. And we've started to trade down and the restaurant earnings were kind of mixed. Yeah, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, eating out is an extremely discretionary thing, but employment is very strong. Uh, that's kind of the, the, the first stop in checking as to whether the consumer can keep up the, the dining out habit. The other piece is food at home, groceries have had enough of a price increase that on a relative basis, a lot of the casual dining and fast food chains, even though they've raised prices, still don't look so bad in, in, in comparison. So I think that's the, the bull case. And in terms of performance, it really is the pure fast food stocks that have held up better. Casual dining has shown a little bit of uh, relative weakness just because of the concerns you mentioned, trading along with pretty much the other consumer cyclicals. But if you think that could be resilient, then things like Darden all of a sudden don't look uh, too in, too expensive at this level. Just want to point out what is happening with the broad market because we're gaining a little bit of steam here into the close. The Dow's up 140, Mike. The Nasdaq composite is now up a third of 1%, so solidly in the green. Nasdaq 100 turned positive over the course of this final hour. And a number of sectors have turned green, like technology in the S&P and industrials. Joining some of the other groups like healthcare, financials, and materials, biotech is rallying hard today. 
the ARK Innovation ETF is up 2.3%. So, the, so it's, it's hard to understand exactly what to make of the, the threat on a day where the ECB did a jumbo rate hike yeah. and Powell came out and talked tough on inflation. Yeah, I mean, on some level, and I wouldn't want to apply a too specific a storyline to the moves in the last hour, except to say the market continues to feed off the fact that it did get nicely oversold with a, almost a 10% drop over three weeks. Uh, you do have yields, and the dollar is still pretty tame, so it's not necessarily throwing up a roadblock uh, to a little bit of buying here. And I mentioned, you know, sentiment is a little bit leaning in a, in a pessimistic direction. That's probably a help, although I don't know that any of that means, you know, ARC should be up 3% this moment. Let's do Bitcoin. It's falling uh, nearly 4%. Oh, actually, we're going to hit a, a tweet that just came across Scott Minard because he's going to be joining Closing Bell Overtime. He just came out with a pretty bearish call on stocks. He tweeted that, here it is, stocks could fall another 20% by mid-October. And I said Minard will be on overtime, 4 p.m. Eastern. That's a CNBC exclusive. He, he's saying here, I guess the PEs have trended lower when inflation is higher and year-over-year core PCE now at 4.6%. The S&P trading at nine times. We should see stocks, Mike, fall another 20% if historical seasonals mean anything. What do you think? Well, look, the rule of 20, which he's alluding to there, is, you know, the the PE plus the uh, inflation rate, in theory, should compute to about 20. We're way above that right now. Valuation has not necessarily been the thing that's flashed a green light. I don't know, about 20 percent downside in a month. Yeah, September is a week seasonally with a skew toward, you know, the latter part of the month. But valuation doesn't really work that way in terms of, you know, adjusting on a step function basis over the course of a month because it's out of whack with macro inputs like inflation. So, uh, you know, look, this has been one of the headwinds. Uh, the, the overvaluation, if you still think the market's overvalued, it remains somewhat concentrated in those huge growth stocks. Outside the top five stocks, I think you go down by two P.E. points uh, on forward earnings, uh, you know, with the rest of the S&P, the 495 below that. So, yeah, I, the market's not cheap, but I don't think that means you fall off a cliff uh, right now. Pushing back. Well, be, be interesting to hear Scott talk more about this. Scott Minard with Scott Wapner next hour. Let's hit Bitcoin now because it's falling 4% nearly that, that much this week already. Remaining below the key 20K support level, big part of that weakness is the ongoing strength of the U.S. dollar. Bitcoin getting a little bit of a bounce now. Kate, is there another factor here weighing on Bitcoin? It's definitely the U.S. dollar, Sarah. That's the big thing. Crypto analysts have been watching. And then it's a lot of the macro news in general and things like monetary policy, a lot of what you uh, and Mike have been talking about, but despite, it's kind of ironic if you think about how Bitcoin was created, why it was created, this premise of really being separate from the banking system and decentralized. And then you've got uh, global macro factors really being the biggest drivers right now. Things like the Fed all weighing on risk assets, which Bitcoin is really an extreme example of, uh, hit its high back in November, right before the Fed started hiking rates. So a lot of people are pointing to that. No coincidence there. And then the only outlier we've really seen in crypto-specific news that's moved markets this year has been those bankruptcies and liquidity issues, and that was really to the downside and hit investor sentiment. If you take a look at the dollar versus Bitcoin in the past year or so, around May, you really saw this inverse correlation get a lot stronger. In the past month or so, it's been almost a perfect negative correlation. So a minus eight, a minus one correlation coefficient would really be a perfect inverse. So it's been a leading indicator of what's going to happen with Bitcoin. We've also seen 
Some of the bigger investors, the smart money, as you might call it, or the whales, have been selling and really got around out around the 24,000 mark, according to Glassnow data. So marking the near-term top and adding to uh, some of the selling pressure. Back to you. Got it. Kate Rooney. Kate, thank you very much. Heading into the close, less than two minutes to go here. Regeneron is actually topping the S&P up 19% on some positive trials. What are you seeing overall in the internals, Mike? Yeah, it's been actually pretty solid internally. The breadth has been uh, pretty good most of the day. You see it more than two to one advancing to declining stock. And you still do have uh, small caps, for example, outperforming the big cap indexes. Take a look at industrials relative to the S&P on a year-to-date basis. Been pretty steadily outperforming, almost by, uh, what is it, about five percentage points at this point. Uh, And it's not just because of one or two industrial stocks. So while consumer cyclicals have suffered, financials haven't led, industrials uh, have sort of bucked the idea that we're in some kind of big global economic downturn, for now anyway. And the volatility index is eased back. It's under 24. Uh, Probably not going to crash too much more before the Fed meeting on the 21st, but right now kind of benign, not going to stay in the way of further gains in stocks. As we head into the close, the Dow is up 183 points or so. So we have seen a nice rally just in the last 10 minutes or so as we have ended out this trading day at near the highs of the day. We got up as much as 200 points earlier in the session. Don't think we're going to get there. You've got Salesforce, J.P. Morgan, and Goldman as the biggest contributors to the Dow gains. The S&P is up six-tenths of a percent, now up 2% for the week. Healthcare and banks are leading the charge today. NASDAQ up a half a percent, so technology joins the party just sort of late in the day here. Regeneron, though, is helping the NASDAQ. Tesla, NVIDIA, AMD, and Meta all having a good day. Apple, though, is dragging. That's it for me on Closing Bell. See you tomorrow. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older like a family vacation or starting your dream business welcome to connie's coffee how may i help you aarp's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds that's why the younger you are the more you need aarp start planning today at aarp.org money tools